Greetings once more and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. We are reading through Spurgeon's sermons. This week we're reading from Sermon 80 through to Sermon 86 and our particular focus is Sermon number 85, simply entitled Omniscience. It was delivered on uh, Sunday the 15th of June 1856 at the Exeter Hall. The text is very brief. Thou God seest me from Genesis 16:13. Spurgeon's introduction is a reminder that there are more eyes fixed on men than we know about. Now, if he was saying that then, how much more might he say that now with the proliferation of uh, cameras and uh, the kind of modern surveillance society that we're entering into? Everyone is looking at everyone else. In fact, today we put ourselves on display. Uh, I'm not trying to be conspiratorial at all when I say that we live in a surveillance society. No one really needs to point a camera at us because we're constantly pointing cameras at ourselves and then displaying them for everyone to see. But Spurgeon's point is not just that someone is generally looking at you, but who is looking at you and what difference that makes. He says, it's nothing that angels see me, nothing that devils watch me, nothing that the glorified spirits observe me, compared with the overwhelming truth that thou God at all times seest me. And it's that point upon which he's going to dwell, that the eternal God sees me. As so often, he's got a very simple structure, the general doctrine that God observes all men, then he's going to tighten the screw a little bit. In the second place, the particular doctrine that God sees me in particular. And in the third place, some practical and comforting inferences to different orders of person persons now assembled uh, that we may learn something from this short sentence. So he's going to address it generally. God's omniscience, that is that God knows all things. God sees all things. In the second place, zeroing in that God doesn't just see in the general sense, but in the particular sense, he sees each one of us. He sees me as he sees you. And then thirdly, he's going to apply this to different kinds of people who are in his congregation. His first point is this general doctrine that God sees us. And what he's primarily doing here is proving the point. Uh, he's not so much saying it is so as demonstrating why it is so. But in doing that, he's still demonstrating from the word of God. So he's presupposing the truth of the scriptures here. He says the general doctrine that God sees us may be easily proved from four things. First of all, from the nature of God. Secondly, from the fact that God is everywhere. Thirdly, that God is active in every place. And fourthly, from the fact that God can in fact see a thing before it happens. So he's simply now developing the scriptural proofs for the assertion that God does indeed see everyone all the time. So the nature of God. From his very essence and nature, the Almighty must be an omniscient God. Strike out the thought that he sees me. And you extinguish deity by a single stroke, says Spurgeon. There were no God if that God had no eyes, for a blind God were no God at all. 
In other words, this is an argument from the, the essence or nature of God that by definition... The God of the scripture must be an omniscient God, an all-seeing God. Otherwise, he would be in some way imperfect and less than the creatures that he has made. The logic is simple. Furthermore, the scriptures teach that this God is everywhere. And if he's everywhere, what hinders him from seeing all that is done in every part of God's universe? God is here, says Spurgeon. I do not simply live near him, but in him I live and move and have my being. Now, Spurgeon is not a pantheist or a panentheist. He is saying that the, the God who in himself exists, the eternal I am, is everywhere present. It is not that creation is God. It is not that uh, there is some sense in which we have a, a, a sense of his presence in the world, but he himself is in every place. I've heard some say that, in fact, you, you could argue that God is nowhere in the sense that um, he is, because he is everywhere, you cannot reduce him to some particular place. Uh, it's, a, I suppose, another way of saying something similar, that God is everywhere. I prefer it saying it that way. Uh, I also think that saying that God is nowhere tends to overlook the fact that God can make his presence particularly known. But the point that we're trying to make would be the same one. If God is in every place, how can I refrain from believing that God sees me wherever I am? God is at every point, everywhere, and therefore he must see everything being who he is. The third point, the third proof here, is that God is not simply present, but he is active where he is present. He wants to remind the people who suppose that God may be present but slumbering, that in every spot to which a man can travel, there is not simply God, but also God's activity. In other words, God is not passive. God has not wound up the world and let it run like a clock. God is present and presently active so that we find not a slumbering God but a God busy about the affairs of this world. Now again you need to be careful with that language of busyness as if somehow his government is a strain upon his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, but the sense is that God is always doing something. He is always exercising his power in wisdom. God is everywhere then, not as a slumbering God, but as an active God. And everywhere that we look in this glorious creation that he has made, you will find evidence of God at work, even even if you you have to sort of think it through, as it were. He says, put me on a barren rock where moss itself cannot find a footing, and I shall there discern my God bearing up the pillars of the universe and sustaining that bare rock as a part of the colossal foundation whereon he hath built the world. So if you've got eyes to see, you're going to see God everywhere, in your own nature, in the world around you. God is seeing because God is active in every place. And his fourth proof is, he says, conclusive, that God, we may be sure, sees us when we remember that he can see a thing before it happens. Now, if he beholds an event before it transpires, says Spurgeon, before it comes to pass, surely reason dictates he must see a thing that is happening now. 
and he's uh, therefore weaving in this reminder that God is the God who knows and dictates all things. He has spoken of things that happen before they come to pass. And if the God who speaks is a God who can discern the end from the beginning, then he must know the things which occur now. So Spurgeon is, as it were, looking up and stepping back and bringing in these various proofs, these demonstrations to underscore the basic assertion that God sees all, uh, the general doctrine that God sees all, all in this world and all people. But now he's going to come closer and here is the preacher at work. Because a preacher does not leave the truth simply lying on the surface, but looking to the Spirit for his blessing, presses it into the conscience of men. And that's what Spurgeon does, moving from the general to the particular or special doctrine, that the God of whom he has been speaking doesn't just see, but he sees me. And it's interesting that Spurgeon speaks as someone conscious that he's addressing thousands of people at this time. Because under those circumstances, and sadly it's true in a smaller congregation as well as in a larger, people are apt to think that the man is not preaching to me. We're all shoulder slopers by nature. If you're regularly hearing a sermon, you probably know what it's like to hear the preacher make a point and think... I hope so-and-so is listening to that. Uh, there are times when I uh, want as a preacher maybe to put my head in my hands at the door when someone says to me, oh, it's so, so useful, just, oh, that's wonderful. I, I, hope that, I hope that people were listening to that or wouldn't it be wonderful if other people could hear it? And I think, well, I'm glad that you think that, but wouldn't it be great if you'd heard it if you'd taken it to heart because you're giving me the impression that you think that this is for other people so he says when the gospel is preached we lend our ears to everybody we're accustomed to hear for our neighbors and not for ourselves now i have no objection to your lending anything else you like but i do have a strong objection to you lending your ears keep them at home for a minute or two he says because i want you to hear for yourselves this truth that god sees me and now he presses that home and he's firm but he's also quite gentle he's uh, not going at people but he is going after people so he says select anyone out of this great congregation and god sees you as much as if there were nobody else in the world for him to look at now i wonder what might have been under god the effect of that in that great vast congregation whether or not for a moment, one here or there, were feeling as if the eye of God were turned directly upon them. That the, the eye of God is, is trained upon everyone simultaneously. Now, we as finite and mortal creatures, that's so hard for us to grasp we can only really concentrate on one thing at once and, and even then perhaps not for very long. But here is the infinitude of God. Here is the omniscience of God. And, and Spurgeon has this awesome conception of the power and capacity, the infinite capacity of God. Now, all our attempts to make uh, this 
understandable on the human level are always going to fall short. Do we say that God can concentrate on everybody simultaneously? Again, that doesn't just seem to, to hit the spot. He's, he's trying, though, to communicate this sense that you, 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 you are the particular object of God's attention at this very moment, that God's eyes are looking down upon you. Remember that. And now he peels back another layer. In the next place, God sees you entirely. It is not merely an external perspective that God has, but the Lord thinks it looks into the depths of your very soul and sees what you're thinking and sees what you're feeling. Spurgeon says he can read every word that's in your breasts. He knows every thought, every imagination, every conception, yes, every unformed imagination, the thought scarce shot from the bow, reserved in the quiver of the mind. He sees it all, every particle, every atom of it. There's not even a hint of a shadow of a thought that you can have in the depths of your being of which God is not utterly and entirely aware. From the crown of your head then to the sole of your foot, God is examining you now. And if the congregation perhaps had felt the eye of God upon them to begin with, now they, they feel themselves subjected to the scrutiny of God. And now again, God sees you constantly, not just you particularly and entirely, but constantly. Spurgeon says, and he's making this helpful contrast, yes, you're sometimes watched by man and then your conversation is tolerably correct. So your, your conduct, you, you put the, the best foot forward, you, uh, you show your best face when someone is looking at you. It's the, the equivalent perhaps of the, the Instagram filter today. You want to make sure that you appear at your best in public. But at other times, he says, you seek retirement and you indulge yourselves in things which you would not dare to do before the gaze of your fellow creatures. The uh, Not even now the, the no-makeup selfie, but the, the, the things that you wouldn't even want anybody to see. Not even drawing attention to the fact that you're putting yourself on display, but the things that you would never want to be revealed. He says then, you may shut me up forever, where ear shall never hear my prayer, where I shall never see my misery. As a preacher, you can either walk away or put me away. But whatever you do with me, one eye shall look upon me and one countenance smile on me if I suffer for righteousness' sake. So you see here that it's going in two directions, not only the fearful reality that even when you wouldn't want someone else to see you, God does, but the comforting reality that even if someone tries to put you away, God himself does see. So you understand now the, the clarity and the, the, the cutting edge of this, but it, it cuts in order to take away fears and distresses as well as to remove excuses. And then another sub point here, another uh, subheading that God sees me supremely. Yes, I can see myself, but probably not as well as friends or foes. Others can see me better than I can see myself, but no man can see me as God sees me. There is something that is distinct, something that is divinely unique of necessity about the way that God sees a man, that 
Uh, you may stand up before men and say, I'm a public man. I wish to be observed and noticed. All your deeds chronicled. All men may hear of them. But men will never know you yet as God will know you. There was a, a film uh, a few years ago called The Truman Show uh, about a man who, although he didn't initially realize it, was uh, constantly on screen. His whole life turned out to be a television program. And Spurgeon is saying, obviously, television is uh, not something that he's aware of, but he's saying, in effect, that even if a camera were trained on you 24-7 and someone were watching you 24-7, that still they would not know you in the way that God knows you because God penetrates to the very depths. Even if someone else could hear all your thoughts, it is God's sight that is superlative and supreme. And he wants the people to feel this truth. Even as my eye rests on you, so in a far, far greater sense does God's eye rest on you. Standing, sitting, wherever you are, this is true, thou God seest me. Try and think then, thou God seest me. And again, perhaps we can try and put ourselves now in the, the shoes of this congregation, that perhaps under the sweet and penetrating influences of God's Spirit, there are thousands of people now who are feeling the sense that the eye of the Almighty, the all-holy God, is resting upon them. And perhaps as we read this sermon, and perhaps as you, you hear what I'm saying now, that's the same kind of sense that we should actually be cultivating, not just hoping it happens, but meditating upon these truths. These sermons are distributed in order that at least in some measure, if you like, there could be an overspill from the uh, immediate spiritual realities of the very act of preaching itself. And so Spurgeon now has the whole congregation uh, with this spirit-worked awareness that these things are pressing home upon them, that the eye of God in this moment is penetrating to the depths of their being and always will. And now he moves to the application. Now under God he's peeled back the layers, now he's trying to bring something to the heart. And he speaks first to the prayerful, then to the careful, then to the slandered. So these first three applications are primarily to God's people. Prayerful man, prayerful woman, here is a consolation. God sees you and if he can see you, surely he can hear you. So when you are calling out to God, when perhaps you, you barely know what to speak, when perhaps he says there is a desire but words stagger under the weight of it, God knows the wish when language fails to express it. God is not simply looking at the, the, the bowed knee or the bent head. He's not simply watching your face, as it were, and trying to work out what's going on. No, God can see into the very depths of your spirit and when it is an inmost cry, when your flesh and your heart are failing, God sees, God knows. If you cannot speak, yet God can still see all the desires and concerns of your heart. There's comfort, first to the prayerful. 
Also, a word for the careful, those who are very full of care and doubts and anxieties and fears. And he imagines someone saying, well, if you could just come and spend some time with me, you'd you'd understand why I am so distressed, why I'm so isolated, why I'm so alone. And perhaps there are many in our day who would say the same thing under these particular circumstances, because the limitations of social media are being exposed by extended seasons of isolation for many in this world. But Spurgeon's point is you are not alone in the world. There's at least one eye regarding you, one hand ready to relieve you. So he's sort of constantly here lifting away from just the eye and insisting upon the fact that if the eye of God is on his people, then so the whole heart of God is toward his people and all God is, is engaged on their behalf. Don't give up in despair, he urges. If your case be ever so bad, God can see your care, your troubles and your anxieties. For God, it's enough to see the distresses of his family at once to supply their wants. And now a word to the slandered. And here he's uh, perhaps coming close to home for himself. There are some of us who come in for a very large share of slander. And perhaps we forget that Spurgeon was loathed as much as he was loved, that despite these great congregations, there was a a real outcry against him in many respects. He says it's seldom that the slander market is much below par. It usually runs up at a very mighty rate, and there are persons who will take shares to any amount. So he's, he's aware that people love to defame the character of God's servants. Well, if that happens, here's a comfort, that God sees me. These slanderers will say that such and such is your motive, but you need not answer them. You can say, God knows that matter. You are charged with such and such a thing of which you are innocent. Your heart is right concerning the deed. You have never done it. Well, you have no need to battle for your reputation. You need only point your finger to the sky and say, there is a witness who... There is a witness there who will write me at last. There is a judge of all the earth whose decision I am content to wait. His answer will be a complete exoneration of me and I shall come out of the furnace like gold seven times purified. He's saying resign your reputation to God. The Lord knows. He sees you. And that's more important. What God knows is more important than what man thinks. So, if any man desires to reply to the false assertions of his enemies, let him go and do good, and he needs not say a word. That will be his answer. I myself, he says, am the subject of detraction, but I can point to hundreds of souls that have been saved on earth by my feeble instrumentality, and my reply to all my enemies is this. You may say what you like, but seeing these lame men are healed, can you say anything against them? You may find fault with the style or manner, but God saves souls, and we will hold up that fact like giant Goliath's head to show you that although it was nothing but a sling or stone, so much the better, for God has gotten the victory. So you understand then that Spurgeon is not simply commending to others something that he doesn't rest upon himself. No, for those who are prayerful and careful and slandered, the fact that God sees us is a great and sweet comfort to the soul. But there's another side to God's omniscience. 
a sentence or two to some of you who are ungodly and know not Christ. And the reminder to them comes that whenever you sin, you sin in the teeth of God. It's bad enough, he says, to steal in darkness, but what about the thief who steals in daylight? It's vile, fearfully vile, to commit a sin which I desire to cover, but to do my sin when man is looking at me shows much hardness of heart. Are we then conscious of the fact that our sin is always before the eye of God, that we cannot get away from God's observation? Does that not render our sin extremely heinous? Does that not show us the sinfulness of sin? So he beseeches his hearers, think of that and repent of your wickedness, that your sins may be blotted out through Jesus Christ. But one more point. O sinner, how easy it will be then to condemn you. He refers to the late horrible case of Palmer. Now, uh, Palmer was a, a famous Victorian poisoner who was um, uh, tried, accused, tried uh, and eventually executed because of murder. And he says a jury tried the accused man. But if the judge could have mounted the bench and said, I saw the man myself mix the poison, I stood by and saw him administer it, I read his thoughts and knew his purpose, I read his heart, I was with him when he first conceived his black design, I've tracked him in all his evasions, in all those acts by which he sought to blindfold justice, and I can read in his heart that he knows himself to be guilty now. Actually, the trial's already done. How much more, then, when a sinner stands before God and every thought and intent of the heart is already and entirely known. There is nothing of which we are guilty that God does not already know. And when God then brings judgment upon us for our sin, he will tell us to depart as the accursed. He saw us sin. It needs no witnesses. He's heard our oaths, our curses, our blasphemies, our thefts, our thoughts. I am clear when I judge thee, says God to the sinner. I am justified when I condemn thee, for thou hast done this evil in my sight. And again, if if there's someone here in this congregation of Spurgeons that has felt something of the sense of God's eye upon them, and it's not for their comfort, can you imagine how terrifying this could and should be? and should be to us if we don't know God. So Spurgeon, being Spurgeon, is never going to leave somebody in that state. Lastly, you ask me then, what must you do to be saved? And I will never let a congregation go, I hope, till I have told them that. Hear then in a few words the way of salvation. You see, Spurgeon only intends to bring down in order that, by God's grace, men may be lifted up. You ask what you are to believe. Why this, he says, that Christ died and rose again, that by his death he did bear the punishment of all believers, and that by his resurrection he did wipe out the faults of all his children. And if God give thee faith, thou wilt believe that Christ died for thee, and wilt be washed in his blood, and thou wilt trust his mercy and his love to be thine everlasting redemption when the world shall end. Now, if you are a Christian, does the omniscience of God bring you the comfort that it should? That as you make your way through this world, God is with you, watching you, 
He hears, he sees, he knows, and he is ready to bless, and he will vindicate at last. But if we are not yet saved, then God sees and knows all our sins, but praise him, he's made a way of escape, a Christ who is able to wash us clean, to bring us into God's kingdom, that the eye of God that is bent upon us would no longer be that of the omnipotent judge, but that of our omnipotent Father in heaven, who is ready to watch over us and to bless us and to keep us every step of the way. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.